Welcome to Science Actually, a podcast by Imperial College London students and staff. In our podcast, we explore the misconception around the human body. In each episode, a member of a podcast team interviews Imperial's experts to see if they have the answers to our burning questions. Hello everybody and welcome to this episode of Science Actually. My name is Katie Addy, I'm a medical doctor and teaching fellow at Imperial College and today I'm here asking the big question, can taking drugs of abuse have health benefits? To discuss this topic, I'm joined by Belash Schetti, a researcher at Imperial working in the field of psychedelic science. A little bit of background in psychedelics, they're a, a class of hallucinogenic drugs and they can cause changes in thought visual and auditory hallucinations, and often they substantially alter the state of consciousness. Belash himself has a degree from Imperial College in Physics and earned a PhD in Computational Neuroscience from the University of Edinburgh. He became involved in psychedelic science in 2016 when he collaborated with the Global Drug Survey to show that neuroimaging studies consistently overestimate potential harm of recreational MDMA use. Um, and since he's been working in investigating microdosing with LSD. Um, so we're going to be picking his brain um, and using his expertise to explore this area. Belash, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for the uh, invitation. So the basic question is, is the relationship between drugs of abuse and health benefits? And uh, this is very typically how people are framing this question. But uh, I think the, the most important thing to realize is that there is not a sharp division between drugs of abuse and medicine. Uh, there is a fair amount of overlap between the two. And maybe that is best um, demonstrated if you think about morphine. Morphine in an opioid, probably one of the most addictive substances known, but modern medicine is unthinkable without the use of morphine. So the, the, what's important to emphasize is that there is not a clear separation between drugs of abuse and what is medicine. And the other important part that goes with that is that context makes, uh, or context separates what we are thinking about drugs of abuse and uh, what can be thought of as medicine. And here almost like the, the mandatory experiment which really helped to understand the importance of context is the one that was done, I believe, by a guy called Lee Robbins who was uh, a medical personnel at the US Army. Because around, uh, I think it was in 1971, there was a very influential hearing at the US Congress where some congressman uh, showed that about 20% of US military personnel in Vietnam is using heroin. So then there was a lot of discussion about how we are going to deal with the drug use of these US soldiers returning home. But it turned out that when those soldiers returned from the front, many of them did not continue their heroin using habit. I believe uh, about 90% of the soldiers used heroin in Vietnam completely stopped using heroin when they returned to the US without any problem of transition. And even among the 10% who then continued to use heroin while returning to the US, a very few of them developed actually problematic drug use. 
So what is going on here is, is that in the context of being at the front in Vietnam, which is a very stressful situation when heroin was easily accessible to the soldiers, many of them developed a heroin addict, but they did not become addicts and one day changed the environment, returned to their families, into the normal uh, uh, into their normal life, uh, heroin addiction was not an issue anymore. Yeah, it's a it's a really it's a really interesting point. I think there's some really key details here to pick up on that I'd quite like to explore. Um, I wanted to start maybe with some of the um, research that you've you've done on some uh, drugs of abuse. And for starters, uh, you've done some uh, studies on MDMA and psychedelic drugs. Um, so I wonder, can you tell us a bit about these drugs and your take on whether they are drugs of abuse? Yeah, sure. So it's important to understand that MDMA is a very different substance compared to classic psychedelic drugs such as LSD and psilocybin. Uh, crucially, MDMA stands for methylene dioxymethamphetamine. Uh, and as the name indicates, it is a substance which is very close to amphetamines, which are themselves uh, addictive. So when it comes to MDMA, I definitely think that there is a potential for abuse. Uh, on the other hand, with classic psychedelics, we barely know of any abuse. And the reason for that is twofold. First of all, with classic psychedelics, there is a short-term tolerance meaning that if you are taking, uh, uh, let's say, LSD one day, then the next day you would need to take a lot more to get to the same effects. Uh, this is generally true for all of the drugs, but the tolerance tends to build up slowly over time. With psychedelic drugs, it's very short-acting, so it just would not be economical to abuse psychedelics, so to speak. But more importantly, when it comes to the psychedelic drugs, the classic psychedelics, such as psilocybin and LSD, they give a very intense experience to the user. Uh, often psychedelic, the effects of psychedelic drugs are described as looking yourself in the mirror naked, something like that. But the point being is that uh, uh, classic psychedelics uh, force you to have a look at yourself. And if you are not in a good place in life, then it's very likely that the experience that they are going to give to you is not going to be pleasant either. So if you're somebody who is fighting addiction, who is trying to escape from something in real life, then psychedelic drugs are generally not a good drug uh, for that. Uh, coming back to MDMA, so MDMA, because it is uh, based on amphetamine, it definitely has abuse potential, and we do see some patients uh, who are abusing MDMA. Uh, that being said, uh, MDMA, by and large, is, can be considered a, a, a safe substance. We see that in the clinical studies uh, that are using MDMA. And we know from the epidemiological literature as well that only a small fraction of MDMA users ever develop an MDMA habit that would, be, uh, that would have health, health consequences. Okay, maybe if we focus a bit more on MDMA and uh, the, the study that you were involved in, can you tell us a bit about that study? Yeah, sure. So what we did with the MDMA is that with my colleague at Imperial College, David Erizzo, is that we were interested in whether studies that are studying MDMA, are they representative of how MDMA is actually used in real life by real people? 
So what we did or where we focused the effort is neuroimaging studies. And the reason for that is because neuroimaging studies consistently show that MDMA can damage the brain in a certain sense. It is damaging to uh, serotonergic neurons. This finding is partially responsible for banning MDMA and why it had a bad reputation. However, one thing which uh, is important to emphasize is that if you look at those neuroimaging studies that bring forth the evidence uh, with respect to this uh, neuronal damage, those studies, all of them are focusing on very, very heavy MDMA users. Global Drug Survey is a web-based survey about recreational drug use. So what we did is that we took the MDMA portion of the survey and we extracted from it how often people use MDMA and how much they use on one occasion uh, when they are taking an MDMA at night. And we use that data to represent how MDMA is used in real life by real people. And then we went back to the literature to the aforementioned neuroimaging studies and then we extracted the same information. People who have been participating in these studies how often they use the MDMA, and when they use the MDMA, uh, how much of the drug they have used. And what we have found is that there was a very large difference between these two population of uh, MDMA users. In terms of like the average MDMA used over a period of a year, what we found is that people in the neuroimaging study have used 720% more MDMA compared to the average user in the entire global drug survey sample. So what this argues for is, is that, at least in the case of uh, neuroimaging studies on MDMA, the research very, very heavily focuses on these extreme users rather than focusing on uh, the typical users. And one thing where, uh, which I would like to add here is that Typically, neuroimaging studies focus on these heavy users where it is more likely that you are going to see a change. That's, why, that's how typically heavy users are justified in such studies. And I think that's very rational, but what's important then to emphasize that, okay, but then there is a separate question how much you can extrapolate from these very heavy users to the much more representative moderate users. And, and currently that is uh, really unexplored in the context of MDMA because all of the neuroimaging studies are focusing just on these very heavy users. It could be the case, which I suspect to be the case that for moderate MDMA users, we would not be able to detect uh, this damage, which is present in the very heavy users. Uh, again, the top 5-10% of all uh, of the recreational MDMA user population. Yeah, you've highlighted something really key that we wanted to explore in this podcast. This idea of scientific uncertainty, the fact that we have evidence, but it doesn't tell us everything. And that's why we need to keep investigating. There's some really exciting evidence coming out of Imperial at the minute about the use of MDMA to help people suffering with PTSD. So that's post-traumatic stress disorder. And it's interesting to see how the research that you've done may well have led to further research into MDMA. So had you not conducted your research to show that the evidence on brain damage and MDMA use focuses on extremely high doses, we might not have known to look further. Okay, we can find a safe dose. And actually, if we can find a safe dose, we can find a really good use for some of these drugs. And um, I just think that's, yeah, that's some of the intrigue of, of science and 
just really exciting that things are opening up. I think it seems like in the world of psychedelics, there's a lot more studies being conducted. Um, for example, psilocybin is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms, the active psychedelic ingredient, um, and it's shown to be effective at treating depression. So I wonder what you thought about that. Um, why has the field of psychedelic science been opening up so rapidly recently? I think it's fair to say that neuropsychopharmacology, so the development of drugs for mental disorders, has been really lacking any significant breakthrough in the last, let's say, 20 years, something like that. There has been minor improvements and tinkering with drugs that are already on the market, but there hasn't really been anything which felt really like a breakthrough. But in the meantime, there is an epidemic of mental um, illness globally. So there is a greater and greater demand for uh, effective medication on mental illness, but there is a lack of promising research. Or at least that was the case 10 to 20 years ago. With the phase three of the MDMA for PTSD study done, there is a widespread feeling in the community that the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration in the US, is going to approve MDMA for medical use uh, somewhere in the next five years. Uh, uh, and, and that's going to be a historical moment because then MDMA has made its journey from a party drug back to medicinal use. And I think that after that, psilocybin, so the active ingredient in magic mushroom, is going to follow that very, very soon, again, for medical uh, purposes. Um, Right now, almost all of the research with psilocybin focuses on depression and almost all of the research with MDMA focuses on PTSD because there are reasons to believe that these are safe bets, that these medicines are going to be effective for these conditions. But after the legal frameworks are in place and studies are going to come out in bunches, I think there is going to be a lot more conditions that are going to be uh, explored, whether MDMA or psychedelics can be used to treat uh, a number of mental health conditions and why I do not expect them to be uh, able to deal with everything. I think very quickly the number of conditions where MDMA and psychedelics are prescribed is going to expand uh, fairly quickly. Yeah, and what are your thoughts then? So given you just spoke about a a mental health epidemic and we're just coming out of a, a, a year where that's probably going to be greatly exacerbated. Um, yes, I would bet on that as well. What are your thoughts then on these kind of drugs? So on regulation or legalization of these kind of drugs so that they would be able to be used by the general population. What's the danger there? Um, you know, should it happen, regulation or legalization? What are your thoughts? So I think, well, there are two important thoughts here. First of all, is that when it comes to MDMA psychedelics, nobody is talking about legalization in the sense that you would be able to go to, I don't know, Tesco and, you know, buy MDMA there. Everybody is talking about it through, um, uh, about medical access. So everybody is talking through as MDMA or psychedelics as a prescription medicine. And obviously the devil is in the details when it comes to regulation, but it is important to emphasize that where the field is heading and what seems to be achievable right now is that these substances are going to be legally available uh, through medical prescription. But the other point, which I think is also important, 
when we talk about potentially legalization and opening up the medical space and uh, also considering recreational use, that often when we talk about legalization, the mindset and how people talk about it is that whether that given drug is available in the country or not. But that is misleading. The question of legalization is not that whether, let's say, MDMA is present in the UK or not. The real question is whether MDMA users will source their MDMA from a regulated legal market or from the black market. And we know that because MDMA is available in the black market, not just in the UK, but in practically every other country. So we know that this problem cannot be solved uh, purely through police work and with draconian drug policies. We just know that they do not work. It has never worked in history and it has never worked anywhere. So it is likely that approach is not going to lead uh, anywhere. I think, I believe, even for recreational users, it a good and well thought out legalized framework uh, for accessing MDMA, even for recreational users, would be better compared to the currently completely unregulated black market model. But the devil is in the details. Obviously, details have to be uh, thought out. Again, I think it would be a bad idea to make MDMA just completely freely available. Say at Tesco's, let's stick with that example. But I think a well thought out regulated market where people, even for recreational purposes, can access MDMA in some quantities under some circumstances would be superior to the currently to the current black market model of MDMA. Yeah. We can't ignore that uh, these drugs are being used recreationally, whether they're legal or not, and uh, particularly as the field opens up and they become available on prescription, um, some really careful thinking has to go into regulation. Um, well, Belash, it's been a pleasure to chat to you today, to think about what constitutes a drug of abuse, cover some of your really interesting research and, and see the value of investigating these illegal drugs. Um, it's clear from this conversation that the research into these drugs provides real hope for the treatment of mental health disorders, um, but it seems like there might be a complex road ahead in terms of regulation, um, particularly as these drugs are used um, recreationally. So thank you so much for joining us today. It's It's been a really interesting one. Yeah, thank you for the invitation. Take care.